Welcome to Creation Training Radio and TV. I'm your host, Mike Riddle, founder and president of Creation Training Initiative, or CTI, where our mission is to tramp others with the skills and knowledge to effectively teach about biblical creation and how to defend God's word and his truth so that they can in turn go out and train others to do likewise. Now, in today's session, we're going to continue with chapter one of our basic creation training course. This is a one-day course that we offer for teens and above, and in there we have five chapters. Chapter one is the Bible in time. Chapter two is called the Genesis flood and the Tower of Babel. Chapter three is biblical apologetics. Chapter four is dismantling the four pillars of evolution, and chapter five is answering 10 challenges. And we're going to continue in chapter one today with our topic, how to handle objections to a literal six-day creation. Now, many church leaders and Christians and even professors in Christian universities do not hold to a literal six-day creation. And the reason for this is they have been taught or are under the belief that the scientists have proven this earth must be billions of years old. Now, when I ask Christians why they believe in an old earth, the main reason is their understanding of the scientific evidence, not the Bible. Many times they simply won't go to the Bible. It's always their understanding of the scientific evidence, even though most of them do not understand that there's much scientific evidence out there that does support a literal six-day creation. So in other words, in this issue of creation, the Bible is not their authority. And we have professors in universities doing just this, elevating their understanding of science over God's word and spreading that to the next generation. So now, here's some of the reasons that I've been given. Again, when I ask Christians why they believe in an old earth, number one is, again, their understanding of science. Number two is sometimes called the day-age theory, where each days of creation is millions and billions of years long. Well, we've already covered that in the previous session, and we showed the Bible clearly teaches that each one of those days was a literal day. Then other reasons we're going to cover in this session will be 2 Peter 3.8. We'll have to look at that scripture and see what it says. There are some people out there who believe there were some forms of death before sin. We'll have to cover that. Then there's the big one called the gap theory. What is it? And why did people try and use that? We also have Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, where we see the word day. That does not mean a literal day. So therefore, the days of creation are not days. And finally, something called the framework hypothesis, which teaches that God's creation is more of just a poetic instance and not to be taken as real history. So we need to examine each one of these objections. In order to do that, we're going to go through each one, and it's called Responding to Five Challenges. So our challenge number one will be 1 Peter, or 2 Peter 3.8. 2 Peter 3.8. And what does it say in 2 Peter 3.8? Well, it reads this way. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, but one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Well, right there, doesn't it teach a day can be a thousand years or maybe some indefinite period of time? And because of that verse, many people are taking the word day there and putting it into Genesis chapter 1 and say, well, if the day doesn't mean a literal day in 2 Peter 3, 8, 
that it doesn't have to mean a day in the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. Well, what we have to do here is look at the context of 2 Peter 3.8. We had a word we used for that in one of the previous sessions called hermeneutics. Now, what was hermeneutics again? This is your review. Hermeneutics is a way of understanding or interpreting written text. It's a method of interpreting scripture. And what it is called is context. We must look at the context where a word or a verse is used to derive the intended meaning. And we look at the full context of 2 Peter 3, 8, it's not referring back to creation. It's not referring to Genesis. It's referring more to the end times and the attributes of God. That God created time. He is not bound by time. He is not bound by his creation. He stands outside of time. So it has nothing to do with the days of creation. And secondly, there's a very important word in this verse. Let me read the last part of it. A thousand years as one day. <clears throat> well, that word as is very important here because it turns this whole verse into what we call a figure of speech or a simile, meaning it's not meant to be taken literally. However, in Genesis 1, we do not see the word as anywhere. Also in Genesis chapter 1, we see the word day with a number in each case. And we saw that in a previous lesson. Every time in the Old Testament we have a number of the word day, it means a day. Also in Genesis chapter 1, we have the definition of a day or the day defined evening and morning first day, evening and morning second day, which we don't see any of this in 2 Peter 3.8. Therefore, those who are using 2 Peter 3.8 to force a different interpretation, in other words, make the days of creation long periods of time, are really taking God's word out of context, and we shouldn't be doing that to support our personal opinions. We should not be adding things into God's word that are not there. His word is complete. It does not need to be changed or made so-called this relevant to the current culture. Now let's take a look at our second challenge. Death. Was there some form of death before sin? Well, some Christians believe there was. And one of the things they commonly use is plant death. Now what were Adam and Eve eating from? Plants. What happens when we dig up plants and we eat them? Well, we kill them. Does that mean there was really death before sin then? Well, again, we must look and see what the Bible teaches before we try and add something into it, and we should never add anything into it. First of all, the Bible makes a clear distinction about plants. Nowhere in the Bible is, are plants given the breath of life. See, in the Bible, humans and animals are given the breath of life, and that word is nephish, nephish. Plants are never given nephish. Now, biologically, plants have life because they have a cell structure. But biblically, they are not given life. That means we cannot make the statement that plants were dying before sin because they do not have the breath of life. Now, that takes care of challenge number two. Was there any death before sin? No, there was no death before sin. Plants are not given life. Neither are microbes or bacteria. None of those are given the breath of life. So we've looked at two challenges. 2 Peter 3.8, we see that is commonly taken out of context to support people's opinions about the days of creation. And the second one was plant death. And we saw that plants do not have the breath of life. Therefore, there was no death before sin. Now, we also can go to, where did death come from? 
Well, we can turn to Romans 5.12 again. What does it teach us? Death came through one man, sin. Romans 8.22, all of creation groaneth. All of creation is in decay. Why? Because of one man's sin. And again, since plants don't have life, they were not counted as dying before sin. Well, now let's go to challenge three, the gap theory. This has been a theory that's been around a long time. So what is it? Why was it invented? And what text, biblical text, are use, people using to support the gap theory? So we want to look at all of that. And we'll start with what is the gap theory? Well, it applies to the first two verses of Genesis. And let's read those, the first two verses of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. Now, let's read it the way the gap theorists teach it. And we start again. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's Genesis 1.1. Then we stop, and we have a gap of time, millions to billions of years, and then we continue with Genesis 1-2, and the earth was without form and void. That's the gap theory. <clears throat> now, the gap theory became popular in the 1800s. It is generally attributed to a gentleman by the name of Thomas Chalmers in the 19th century, who was a Scottish theologian. He made it very popular. Now we have to look at some things about the gap theory. What would have caused this supposed gap of millions to billions of years? Well, there are several variations of the gap theory today, but the most popular one happens to be the, the one where God created and then Satan rebelled. And because of his rebellion, he and his angels were, were cast down to earth. And at that point in time, some large catastrophe occurred on earth. And then God has to come back and recreate everything. So it's a large catastrophe that occurs in this large gap of time that left the earth without form and void. Now, why was the gap theory even invented? Well, to accommodate what people believe were the long geologic ages and the mass, vast amount of time to create the fossil record. To do that, and they still wanted to believe in a six-day creation. So the gap theory reads like this. God has his original creation. Then we have the rebellion of Satan and his angels. Then we have a large gap of time where the earth falls into a, a place where it's now unformed and unfilled. And then God comes back and recreates everything in six little days. So we have initial creation, we have a catastrophe, and we have a recreation. That is the gap theory. So now let's look at some of the most popular biblical texts used to support the gap theory. When we do this, we're going to look at five different texts, five different evidences. And evidence number one will be the word was in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And it reads this way, the normal reading. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. Notice the word was in Genesis 1, 2. Well, the gap theorists changed that word was to became. So it will read like this, verse 2. And the earth became without form and void. To give the indication, God created it and something happened and it became without form and void. And that's where they put the gap. Now the question is, that verb was, can we legitimately translate it to became? Well, it can be translated became, but only in very specific circumstances. 
Let me read you some quotes by recognized experts in the field, and then we'll see what those specific circumstances are. Now, Charles Taylor, he has his PhD in linguistics and he's professor of theology. In his book, The First 100 Words, writes this. It is true the word sometimes means became, but A, a such a translation is rare, and B, when it means became, it is normally preceded by a preposition. And folks, in this case, it is not preceded by a preposition in Genesis 1-2. So that's not a correct translation. Was is the correct translation. Now here's another gentleman, Weston Fields, who has his PhD in the Bible, and is a professor of classical languages, and he states this, recognize grammarians, lexographers, now these are Hebrew scholars, and linguists almost universally have rejected the translation became or had become. So in other words, it is an incorrect translation to make the verb state became. The correct translation is was. So evidence one, we have a false translation of the word was. It is was and not became. Now let's look at evidence two used to support the gap theory. And we will go to Genesis 1, verse 28, and we'll use the King James Bible in this one and the word replenish. And it reads this way, chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth. Now that word replenish to us has the meaning to refill. But again, we have to understand language. When the King James Bible was written, the word replenish meant to fill, not refill. Since the King James Bible was written, that word has undergone a definition change. Today, the word replenish means to refill. But when the King James was written, it meant to fill. So again, this would be a false interpretation of the language. The King James means to fill when it was written, not refill. So there is no connotation here of a catastrophe occurring. So evidence one, the trend, we have a false translation of the word of the verb was. And evidence two, we have a false interpretation of the word replenish, which again meant to fill back then. Now let's go to evidence three about the gap theory. And this is going to be the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there was a large gap of time, millions and billions of years, to accommodate the geologic ages and the vast amount of fossils, what would have been going on during that vast amount of time? Well, what is, what is the fossil? What are fossils? They're dead things. And the gap theory here is teaching that there would have been millions and billions of years of death, decay, and disease before Adam and Eve. In other words, the gap theory teaches death before sin. Now, if all that's true, then why did Jesus Christ have to physically go to that cross, shed his blood, die, and conquer death through his resurrection? The gap theory, in other words, undermines the entire gospel of Jesus Christ. We no longer have a foundation for why Jesus had to go to the cross. This is a very important issue. Once we add billions of years into the Bible, we do undermine the gospel. Now, we've had three... Three evidences we've seen. Each one has been false. Let's go to evidence four now. Grammar. We're going to go back to grammar, and we're going to look at the word and. 
And again, let's go to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. Notice that word, and. Now the question is, can we legitimately separate these two verses and put a large gap of time in there? Well, the answer is no. Well, why not? Well, the word and, in this case, in the Hebrew, is written in what we call the wall consecutive. Wall, W-A-W, wall consecutive. What that means is these two verses are tied together in a consecutive sequence of actions. In other words, grammatically, we cannot separate these two verses. They are designed to connotate a consecutive sequence of actions. So there again, gap theorists are misusing the grammar to support something that is not in the Bible. Well, let's go to our last evidence then. Evidence five. Let's take a look at the words, words without form and void. Without form and void. Well, those Hebrew words, tohu wabohu. Now, the phrase people use that for is without form and void. Something happened and the earth went into a state of being without form and void. But that phrase, tohu wabohu, or without form and void, are never used in the Bible to indicate <clears throat> some catastrophe or destruction. They're always used to indicate something without boundaries or not yet completed. In Genesis 1, the earth was without form and void on day one. That's because God starts his creation there. It's much like a potter with a ball of clay. It starts unformed, no form at all. And each hour, each day, he molds that ball of clay into a finished product. And that is exactly what God did here. He's created, he has the earth form, <clears throat> and it's a watery mass, no form there. And each day, he begins to mold it or create something new until it is in its completed form. So it's not that the earth started good and without form of void. God starts it without form and then molds it into its completion. So again, without form of void do not indicate some catastrophe, but a form that is not yet completed. So let's look at the summary of the gap theory here. Evidence number one. A false interpretation of the verb was. It means was and not became. Evidence two, a false interpretation of the word replenish. Again, when the King James Bible is written, the word replenish meant to fill, not refill. Evidence three, are, we presuppose, using the gap theory, that there was death before sin, which undermines the gospel of Jesus Christ. Evidence four, incorrect use of grammar. The word and there, written in the wall consecutive, again, that's W-A-W, -W, wall consecutive, indicates these two verses cannot be split apart. They are consecutive in time and sequence. Then evidence five, an incorrect use of the words or translation of the words without form and void. They do not mean a catastrophe. They mean not yet completed. And there are still more problems with the gap theory. In Genesis chapter 1, 31, God pronounces his entire creation very good. Now, if we had a large gap of time in there, which would include the geologic ages and the fossils, God would have been calling all those dead things very good. And also, we find signs of diseases on these bones, and God would have been calling diseases very good. That presents a clear problem when we look at the character of God. 
Also, nowhere in the Bible is it mentioned about a recreation. All we have is a creation, but not a recreation. A gap theory would also relegate the Genesis flood to being a local flood and not a worldwide flood. And we're going to cover that in chapter 2 of our book, Genesis Flood and the Tower of Babel. And also, we have a problem with the very words of Jesus Christ. In Mark 10, verse 6, Jesus Christ makes this statement, But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. In other words, Jesus Christ, our Savior and the Creator, is telling us man and woman were on this planet from the beginning of creation, not after a gap of billions of years. And then finally, the gap theory supports a false interpretation of the scientific evidence. You see, there is much scientific evidence to support a young earth. And again, we're going to see that a lot of that in chapter 2 of our basic creation training manual. So far, we've had the challenges 2 Peter 3.8. We've seen that is not a good challenge. That is taken out of context to support the days of creation being long periods of time. We've had plant death before sin, and we saw that plants do not have the breath of life, so there was no death before sin. And we saw the gap theory misuses Scripture to support a large gap of time. So that's been our first three challenges. Now let's go to challenge four. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and the word day. And Genesis 2, 4 reads this way. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth, when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Notice the words, in the day. Now, we're commonly told that word day does not mean a little day. Therefore, the days in Genesis 1 don't have to mean a little day. However, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, we have a specialized use of the word day. The phrase, in the day, is part of of a prepositional phrase, which means it does not have to be taken literally. It can mean an indefinite period of time. And in fact, in Genesis 2-4, it does not mean a little day. It's referring to the whole creation week. However, in Genesis chapter 1, we don't have the word day as the object of a preposition. It's not part of a prepositional phrase. Therefore, it is meant to be taken literally. And also, we have the word day with a number, which means a day. And we also have the definition of a day, evening and morning. So to use Genesis 2-4 to establish the days of creation were long periods of time is again taking God's word out of context. Now, let's go to the last challenge. Genesis also, the framework interpretation of creation. In other words, the Hebrew language, we're told, is a very poetic language and should not be taken literally. In other words, the framework interpretation of creation argues that God used imagery to serve as his framework for creation. And the scheme of the free creation week, therefore, should not be taken as real history. So again, the claim is that since the Hebrew language is a very poetic language, we should not take the Genesis account as real history. Well, let's look at the response to this challenge. And we're going to look at two issues here. Issue number one. If one part of the Bible is called into question, then when do we stop calling the Bible into question? In other words, who determines what we should take and read literally, and who determines what should be read more of as in imagery or as a poetic style? See, we, we make the Bible a free-for-all. It's anybody's opinion. If I don't like what it says here, well, that's just imagery. That's just poetic reading. And I can do that in the New Testament. Well, maybe Jesus really didn't die. Maybe he really didn't spend three days in the grave. 
You see, when does it stop? What we have to do is use that thing called hermeneutics, the rules of hermeneutics again. They apply everywhere in the Bible. Context. We must look at the context that we're given, not our opinions, not man's understanding of science, but context. So that will be our second issue. The Hebrew language is a very poetic language, but did you know it can also be written in what we call the narrative form, meaning real history? So there are two ways that we can actually determine whether the language is poetic or not. And the first lesson here is going to be a lesson in language. We have to do a lesson in language here. Now, in our English language, we are a language that was called a subject, verb, object language. Notice when we write a sentence, we put the subject first, then the verb, then the object. Now, I'm going to take you right back to your English class here. Subject, verb, object. Other languages can be written in different orders. Some languages can go verb first, then subject, then object. Spanish is a different language. Their order is different from the English. But when we translate those languages to English, we always translate it into the way we read, subject, verb, object. Now, the Hebrew language can be written two ways. It can be written subject, verb, object, or it can be written verb, then the subject, then the object. Well, what's the difference? Well, when we write subject, verb, object in the Hebrew language, that's more of a poetic style of writing. But if we write a sentence in Hebrew and it goes verb first, then subject, then object, that's meant to be more of a narrative style of writing. Now, the literal translation of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, actually reads this way. In the beginning, now those of you who understand the English language, in the beginning is a prepositional phrase. We can set that aside. Then it actually reads this way. Created God the heaven. Folks, created is the verb. God is the subject. Heaven is the object. This is verb, subject, object. This is written in the narrative format, not poetically. Secondly, a common literary feature of the Hebrew poetry in, of the Old Testament is called parallelism, in which words of one or two more lines of text are directly related. Let me give you an example. Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. In other words, heavens and firmament are referring to almost the same thing here. In other words, we have one sentence that says heavens, and the second sentence refers back to the first sentence using the word firmament. That is Hebrew parallelism. And that is a poetic style of writing. Here's another one. Psalm 24, verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in the holy place? Well, the word hill and holy place are related here. Two different, two different sentences related together. That is Hebrew parallelism. But we do not see that used in Genesis chapter 1. The construct in Genesis chapter 1 is meant to be taken as real history. Let me read some quotes here about this. Charles Taylor again, who has his PhD in linguistics and is professor of theology, states this. Genesis 1, or chapter 1 in Genesis, was written in the Hebrew language, which is consistent in using one structure for narrative and quite a different one for poetry. Hebrew poets like David and the Psalms used a subject-verb-object structure like English. In general, then, if the Hebrew goes verb, subject, object, it will be narrative. But if it's a subject, verb, object, it will be poetic. 
And that is exactly how Genesis 1 is written, verb, subject, object. Now, here's another one. James S. Johnson here, who's got his law degree and also a doctorate in theology. And he states this. The sentences in Genesis read like narrative history, not informational parallelism. We do not see that parallelism anywhere in Genesis 1. Now here's another gentleman, Dr. Stephen Boyd. He has his Ph.D. in Hebrew and Cognate Studies, and he's professor of Old Testament and Semitic Languages. And he states this. Now, before I give you the quote, Dr. Boyd did an extensive study on verb forms in the Hebrew language. And this is the conclusion. My findings in this step were that the probability that Genesis 1 through Genesis 2-3 is narrative is between, now here's a statistical study, is between 0.999942 and 0.999987 at a 99.5% confidence level. And then he concludes, I conclude, therefore, that it is, in, is statistically indefensible to argue that this text is poetry. So the Bible in Genesis 1 clearly is meant to be taken as narrative. Now, we've gone through five different evidences, five different challenges, and we've seen each one fails the test that the days of creation were long ages. Long ages, adopting long ages, sometimes referred to as theistic evolution, meaning bringing in parts of evolution in the Bible, leads to many positions contrary to the teachings of what we find in the Bible, such as Adam and Eve would not be the first human beings. Adam was not specifically formed by God. Eve was not directly created from Adam. There would have been death before sin if we adopt long ages. God's curse would have had no effect on his creation. And the gospel would have no foundation because there was already death, decay, and disease. And there's many other problems, such as God's going to restore his creation. What is he going to restore it to if there was already millions of years of death and creation? See, if the authority of Scripture is not observed as Christians, then who sets the standards? I believe God wrote his word. And as it says in John 17, 17, thy word is truth. And it also tells us in the Bible, all scripture is God-breathed, and I don't believe God breathes error. Now, we hope these lessons will encourage you to give you and give you greater confidence in God's word and be better equipped to defend your faith in God's word. Also, if you'd like to find out more about our training courses, and again, we're going through the basic creation training class here. If you'd like to find out more about our courses and bring one to your church or location, you can find out how to do that by going to our website, creationtraining.org. That's all one word, creationtraining.org. Or you can email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, info at creationtraining.org. And we look forward to hearing from you. And remember, God wrote this, not man, on the Ten Commandments. For in six days, the Lord made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. God wrote six days, and we can believe that. Thank you, and God bless. If these lessons had been a blessing to you, you might consider financially supporting the Ministry of Creation Training Initiative. You can do this by going to our website, creationtraining.org. Again, that's creationtraining.org. 
your tax-deductible donation of just $20, $50 or more a month, or a one-time gift of any amount will make you an education partner in building an army of Christian educators who can teach the biblical account of creation and train others to be able to defend their faith and be biblically faithful to God's Word as it states in 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Thank you.